Well, hello, welcome to the Scotland's Choice podcast here at the uh, Aberdeen Independence Movement uh, Conference. What a fantastic day uh, you've had, and we've got some terrific guests on the panel. Um, I'm going to ask them in the traditional format, the way we do it normally, to introduce themselves and tell us a little bit about themselves uh, before we get into the questions. So I'll start with you, Stephen. Oh, thank you. Uh, my name is Stephen Geffens. I'm Professor of International Relations, University of St Andrews, former SNP MP and um, uh, author of a book, Scotland's uh, Foreign Policy Footprint. And Stuart? Uh, I'm the Member of Parliament for Dundee East. That's 17 years now behind enemy lines, which we're not allowed to say anymore. <laughs> so that's 17 years behind enemy lines. <laughs> I don't have a portfolio role anymore, but I'm always busy. I see myself more as a floating midfielder in the ageing centre-half mould. <laughs> And I'm a bit starstruck because we also have Iona Fine. Thank you. <laughs> um, I'm Iona. I'm a folk singer currently in Aberdeenshire, but I've lived in Glasgow for seven years. I studied at the Royal Conservatory of Scotland. I did a degree in traditional music of Scotland and usually tour all around the world pre-COVID. Um, I release music in Scots language and record albums and do what I can to lobby the government to pass legislation to make Scots a real protected and promoted language, just like Gaelic, eh? Well, thank you, and welcome to all of our uh, guests today. Can, can I start with you, Stuart? First of all, uh, best wishes to uh, Mike Russell, who's uh, mm. been struck down with uh, COVID. You've stepped into uh, for him very, uh, uh, very helpfully. Um, you've been on a podcast with us before, and uh, I wanted you to reflect on the um, situation with both uh, Labour and the Tories at Westminster. We've, we discussed in the past that they've uh, treated Scotland always as a, an afterthought uh, when it comes to what needs to be done there. It, do you feel that that is coming through to the public? And do you feel we're here in Aberdeen, where perhaps there's been a tradition of a bit more scepticism over independence in the past? Do you feel that's changing with people because of what they're seeing at Westminster? I think there's two separate issues here. It, in terms of areas like Aberdeen, areas like the North East more generally, where, as you described, there'd been a bit of scepticism, perhaps, about independence. I do think that's changing, and I think it's changing for very hard-headed practical reasons. Any business trying to export has seen their costs rise. Any business trying to recruit is seeing how difficult that's become. Any business trying to import is seeing the raw materials rise. This is only because of Brexit. This is before we get to the other policy failings. So I think self-evidently, more people are and will begin to support independence. With regard to the second part of the question, you know, the Labour and the Tories at Westminster, what I can say is the power grab the Tories are undertaking is real. It is very real. As to whether it's cut through yet and the public get it, I'm not sure that's true, but that simply means people like me and you need to work an awful lot harder to explain what it is they're doing. 
Stephen, uh, first of all, I must mention your, the huge success of your book. Um, it's been doing very well. And if, you, if anyone uh, hasn't picked it up yet, it's a fantastic read and, uh, and well worth uh, getting hold of for its perspective on Scotland's place in, in the world. I'm sure I speak for us all in here when I say it's a fascinating and accessible read. Scotland's ongoing relationship with the EU, however, is clearly a major topic and it will be during the new campaign too. How important has it been for Scotland to maintain a good relationship uh, with the EU and how important will it be uh, post-Brexit before we enter any um, kind of proper negotiations over re-entering the EU after independence? Thanks, Drew. First on the book, it's very kind of you. It's a terrifying thing to do. It's ever do. <laughs> your thoughts are out there. You've nowhere to hide. But there is a second edition coming out next month, so you could hold on. There's a second edition coming out. Thanks, Stephanie, who's engaged in that. That was all about... Remind us the title. I think everybody should be... Uh, nation to nation, um, Scotland's place in the world. Um, and it's, and it's, it's really doing what we're doing now. It's about opening up a discussion. So feel free to read it and think I'm talking nonsense, but engage with the arguments about um, our, our place in the world. And actually, this goes to the heart of the independence debate. We saw, um, obviously, in the aftermath of 2014, we saw a bump in terms of support for independence in 2016 with uh, the, the vote of the UK to leave the EU and, of course, um, Scotland voting to remain. Interestingly, given what Stuart's just said, an awful lot of that polling evidence didn't come in until a couple of years later, mm-hmm. actually, because people wanted to wait and see. They wanted to consider some of the arguments. And I think there's a lesson in that post-2016 period for the independence movement as, as a whole, not just the SNP, incidentally, although I happen to be um, a member. So that's what people are deciding on. People want Scotland to be an independent member state of the EU. That is the, the view of those who believe in independence. So let's give them that certainty. Um, the quickest country to join the EU um, after application was Finland. It did it in about two years and nine months. but. It didn't do that from a standing start. So if Scotland's going to vote for independence, you do not start the day after the independence vote when you wake up. The work starts now. Now there are some challenges for the Scottish Government. I was in Brussels this week. Are we sufficiently staffed up in Brussels if we have an aspiration to be a member of the European Union within the next five years? Are our laws aligned? Have we done an institutional audit? Um, And also, what do people in the member states who will, after all, be making the decision about Scottish accession think about us? Now, I know a lot of work, hard work has been ongoing from, um, from, from, from yourselves and, 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 and others, but there's a lot of work to be done, and that work does not have to wait for any independent referendum. Thank you. Iona, uh, your first time on Scotland's <laughs> Choice, so uh, welcome and thanks for coming on. I'm sure the audience in, in here today and those who are listening to this podcast will be familiar with your uh, passionate uh, advocation of the Scots language and the culture that that uh, brings. Do you think you could try and outline uh, why things like culture, music, language, etc., things we might refer to as the the kind of heart uh, as opposed to the head uh, matters in this debate? Well, I do think it's actually a lot to do with the head. I mean, just last week I was in Kansas City over in Missouri and I was at a folk music conference, a huge one where there was delegates from all over the world. And there was a trade fair, much like the trade fair that we have today. And um, I get in there and there was a man from the Nordic Folk Alliance wearing a Ukrainian pin badge and Scottish pin badge. And I asked him, oh, 
why? You know, nothing's really happening right now. And he was like, oh, but it is. And I support and I have solidarity with the Scottish people. And I thought, wow, you know, we're over in Kansas City and we're strengthening our European relationships. And I just thought it was amazing. And being a singer and a singer of Scottish folk songs, as well as writing my own songs, which are kind of more protesty, it is a conduit of soft power. And I think that on the global stage, that's incredibly important in getting our message across. You'd be surprised at the amount of countries that I've toured to that they have no clue what's going on. Um, not because of ignorance, but because of the, the press and the media that they experience there. Um, they don't understand the nuances that in Scotland we don't have control over our immigration, but in Scotland we do have control over our healthcare and we have prescriptions and we have free tuition. And um, we decide to use resources in ways that we see suits and people just don't understand the difference. You know, I was called, you know, it's it's not ignorance, of course, they're being sweet, but half the time over in Kansas City, I was being called Irish or Northern Irish <laughs> or, or British or, or whatever. And and just explaining, no, I, I'm Scottish. It, it was like over and over and over. So being able to solidify our national identity through culture is really important. Well, it's really interesting. You were talking about things like, you know, the uh, free tuition, etc. there. We, we're recording this podcast at the uh, the, the Progress the Yes conference at the uh, Farain. Nicola Sturgeon has just this week become the longest serving uh, First Minister of Scotland and during uh, her tenure in office we've seen progressive policies come through like the baby box uh, welfare reform including uh, at a critical time things like the Scottish child payment when people have really needed that help setting ambitious targets on climate ch change indeed uh, you know, setting legal targets on that and the list goes on. Th this is a kind of stark contrast to what we see at UK government level. Does this speak to the kind of country an independent Scotland could become? And, and how significant is it at the moment that accolades held by a woman? Yeah, well, first of all, I tweeted about this last week and it had a lot of um, responses, a lot of negative responses, <laughs> comparing Nicola Sturgeon to Margaret Thatcher or, or Theresa May. And the difference between Nicola Sturgeon and Jacinda Ardern and mm. Margaret Thatcher is that Nicola Sturgeon wants to lift up and empower the voices of other women, whereas Theresa May wouldn't have a woman in her cabinet because they, she said that women were too emotional. <laughs> so you have one woman who wants to amplify, um, you know, voices of other women like Rosa Salee, a marginalised mm. voice, and she's been lifted up and now holds office. That's amazing. Um, and I think that she's a real testament to, to our country. Just thinking about that, uh, Stephen and Stuart, um, ask the question, does this speak to the kind of country in independent Scotland could become some of these policies? And Iona's been talking about people's uh, you know, uh, understanding of the different powers that are held between uh, Scotland and West. Minister. Uh, what are your thoughts about the, the, the having the powers for the type of country we want to become in, on, on the back of that? Well, there's a, there's a vision thing here, isn't there? Because if you're trying to persuade people to vote for independence, you're, you're, you're selling a vision to them. And, 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 and forgive me for those who were in our session on the European Union earlier on, because I've said this already, but you have two very distinctive visions. You have one of an increasingly isolated, unilateralist Brexit Britain, which is radically different from the UK that existed back in 2014. And you have a vision for a more multilateralist, independent member state of the European Union. In, in many ways, our vision may have been more radical in 2014, but is now in the European mainstream in 2022. And this is bigger than the, any um, 
than any one party, which is why actually it's, it's really good being here with Iona, who I think has been a fantastic advocate for independence, Absolutely. because that's something that is, is, is part of, it's about building a better nation that does not rely on one party. And much as I respect Nicola Sturgeon, it does not rely on one person either. So, and I think that the way we conduct that and the way we discuss that is really important. Iona's talking about being out there discussing this with people. People don't know what independent Scotland means. They don't wake up in the morning thinking about it, but we have a job of telling them the kind of vision of the country that we have and why that would be positive for them and the rest of the international community. Now, Stuart, you're uh, here on behalf of uh, Mike today, and uh, mm. you're, we, we would probably want to put the question to him. I think people in this room and, and listening would want to put the question, is that question of what the notion of what Scotland could become going to be at the front and centre of messaging for uh, the Scottish independence referendum? What are your thoughts on that, Matt? I think it has to be. Uh, I think... The positive case is absolutely paramount. We've got to, I'll be blunt, we've got to sell something attractive. But at the same time, we've got to point to the things that we can't do. And we've got to point to the things which were, are being done to us and to Scotland, not in our name. Because they're two sides of the same coin. Mm. So let me give an example. We want Scotland to have the greenest, cleanest, most environmentally friendly and sustainable food supply in the world. Eminently sensible thing to say. The UK government last week were talking about GM crops, mm -hmm. where UK regulation, that's to say currently English regulation, would apply across the whole of the UK. That is A, a power grab, and B, undermines the legitimate aspirations of the Scottish government and the Scottish people. These two things are incompatible. I think you need to do both. You need to sell the positive case because it's a good, strong case. You've also got to point out the bad things which are currently being done to us because we're not independent. Mm -hmm. Well, coming to Iona and Stephen, there were many folk who uh, voted no in the referendum in 2014 that were persuaded in the final months uh, by arguments that we all know too well. There's issues around the likes of pension, currency and borders. Do you think um, people are wise to those scare tactics that have been used in the past and continue to be used uh, now? Has the debate shifted at all from 2014, do you think? Yeah, after 2016's EU referendum, the goalposts have changed completely and the only democratic thing to do is to have another referendum on Scottish independence. I mean, a week before, I was 16 years old then, I was in high school in Huntley, and you'd go around the school and there was kids fighting with one another because they were, in, you know, they were engaged, which was really exciting to grow up in a, a generation of kids that were really, really engaged. Um, but you could tell by some of the no voting kids that they were spouting exactly what their mothers and fathers were against them. Uh, there were often farmers as well who were very, you know, no, and I understand. But they've also been hung up to dry by the UK government too. So the goal posts have switched and changed so much, you know. A week before the referendum, there was no oil. Then there is oil. And then years later, we're talking about sustainability and there's the ACORN project, which ended up not getting funded. Exactly so, yeah. Each time we've been strung out and hung out to dry, and I think that we really, really need to take control of what we can take control of. And um, What are your thoughts about the changing argument? So we're amongst friends, so let's say this. <laughs> and I think I, I want to make a really good point about... Um, 
about the dynamic that was there with many people actually switching on to the, the arguments around independence for possibly the first time. Some of them might even be in this room and, 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 and they're certainly part of this movement now. And that was really good. But it means that the job, and actually all the awful things happened at Westminster and Stuart's talked about that. And we see that in, in the hard work that Stuart and colleagues are undertaking. But if people are that little bit more engaged, an awful lot of people have made up their minds one way or another. And um, it's different. It might be, there might be a clearer prospectus, especially post 2016. But this isn't new to an awful lot of people. So we've got a real challenge. Sometimes you need to think there are people who for various reasons, and we can't blame them for this, it's a democratic country, will always vote to remain part of the UK. And that's fine. And we need to think about when we vote for independence, how do we reach out to them? That'll be important. And there are those of us like us who are going to vote for independence. But I think there's about 20% to a third in the middle and we need to focus razor on, on the people. And I think sometimes we can be too focused on reminding ourselves why we're right rather than reaching out and thinking about the people in, in, in the middle. And because this is a workshop um, and, and not a rally, I think those of us who are pro-independence really need to reflect on that. It's not about us and reminding ourselves why we're right and how great it all is. It's about how do we win those 20% to a third who are in the middle who have yet to make up their mind or are swithering either way. It's true. That's a really interesting point, isn't it? That, that issue of shifting uh, former no voters, what I'd, what I'd like to call soft no voters, yeah. to, to yes is clearly a, you know, a vital element in winning the next vote. What, in your opinion, is the best way to engage to do that? I ponder on this a lot, and I'll take the same tack that Stephen took. We're among friends and it's a workshop. Uh, it, it would be the easiest thing in the world to say in 2014 they promised pensions would fall with independence. Mm -hmm. The triple lock's gone because of the union. Mm -hmm. It would be the easiest thing in the world to say in 2014 they told you you'd be out of Europe with independence. It was unionism that took you out. It would be the easiest thing in the world simply to attack mm -hmm. with some justification. And then, of course, we'd have to be prepared to have the answer. So you're going to reintroduce the triple lock for pensions, are you? So we're going to get back automatically to the EU, are we? Now, we need to have the answers to those questions anyway. But nevertheless, you know, th there's, a, there's a debate to be had. I actually think there's something else we need to do rather than just have this bun fight. There's a lot of people who are coming to us, they're not quite there yet. And they say things like, look, if you can only tell us the truth about this, it's not all going to be dead easy. It's not all going to be easy sailing. Uh, and there's a kind of reluctance all politicians have to say, you know, it might be pretty rubbish for a couple of years and then it'll get better. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't want to say that. Maybe we need to find a version of what we're selling, our prospectus, that is as, quotes, honest, as it possibly can be. That we're not hiding from the facts, but nor are, we, nor, are we, nor are we making things sound worse than they really will be. Let's be as honest and authentic as we can. And I think that will get us the respect and pay the dividends rather than just having a sterile, technocratic argument. I want to come to Iona in a second about the issues around getting the message across and some of the, the challenges on social media. Uh, but before I do, you raised an interesting point there about 
uh, you know, being honest about the challenges ahead. Mm. There is a there is a situation that that we witness at Westminster on a, on a weekly basis where uh, things are getting worse and worse on a UK level. And and do you think there's any strength in the argument that whilst there will be challenges for an independent Scotland, actually the biggest danger is staying within uh, the current UK and the way it's set up? I, I, I think there's absolutely no doubt that staying in this reduced, shriveled, rather nasty state is not a healthy place for Scotland or indeed most of the people of England, to be honest, to be. But in a sense, they've chosen this Brexit. They've chosen the route they're going down. We haven't. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's always a case for saying, here is the consequences of constitutional and government action, by which I mean Brexit and the Tory government. And of course, it's self-evidently going to be better for Scotland in terms of our aspirations not to be part of that. So, Iona, um, you're, you're, um, you're very active on social media uh, just now. I've been following your tweets and thoughts for uh, some time. It, it's, a, it's a bit of a, a difficulty getting a positive message across on, sometimes on social media. What are your thoughts about how that should be used? And, and can you just reflect on perhaps some of the difficulties you, you might anticipate are going to come uh, as we try and get the message out towards uh, the next referendum? Yes, well, generally, I get help to shut up and sing all the time <laughs> and that folk singers apparently should not dabble in politics as if there's ever been a folk singer that's never it's <laughs> <laughs> the whole point isn't it <laughs> Woody Guthrie said that it was a folk singer's responsibility to comfort the disturbed and disturbed the comfortable mm. um, I think that's amazing but yes we've been online for the past 12 years we have not been in person this is the first kind of big in person thing I've been to um, anything I put up, I could put up anything and there's going to be some sort of negative comment. And I think that's because I have put my head above the parapet as someone in the arts and the public eye who are really, really passionate about about things. Um, and it's it's totally fine that people debate and have um, educated and intellectual discussions over their differences and their difference of ideology, that's fine. But when it's just abuse, and a lot of the times it is, that's when it's not fine. We've been seeing that you know new councillors who are women are, are, are just terrified because they're just getting onslaughted. Um, and people don't want to run because, well, some people don't want to run because they're too scared of what might come. Um, we need to find ways to support our young people who are putting their necks on the line, putting their at times, sometimes their career on the line and um, to discuss what they believe in. And I'm happy to do that. Um, but I want to feel more supported. I think that we have a community of practice that do support me. Mm -hmm. And that's really sweet, not just me, but other people. Um, but yeah, there's a culture of, I don't agree with you, therefore I'm going to call you a nasty gnat. Mm -hmm. And that's not okay. I mean, it's, that's a nice one. There's much, much worse. Yes. Um, but yeah, social media is uh, the wild west. And um, yeah, we've, yeah. And yet, and yet it is an important uh, way for us to engage, particularly when we're looking at countering arguments that might get lost in the, uh, in the kind of more mainstream media, uh, isn't it? It's, it's, it's a real challenge. Yeah, we're consuming um, media in different ways now. Some people get their news from TikTok, and that is totally fine. Um, but if we have you know, ambassadors, cultural ambassadors, people that are sharing the news, sharing their opinions of it, you know, putting in their tuppence worth, um, on alternative media, whether that be Discord, Reddit, Twitch, 
TikTok. I think that that's quite refreshing. It's going to engage younger people. Um, but yeah, you are open up to scrutiny and criticism and, and downright abuse. Stuart and, uh, and Stephen, what are your thoughts in terms of how we get the message, the positive messages about independence across for the campaign and you, the different channels that we can uh, we can use to do that? I think you've got to use every channel. Mm -hmm. I think the problem is, and this goes back to the last answer about authenticity. Um, if you're going to use TikTok, or if you're going to put someone up on Instagram, um, you've got to know how that medium works. You've got to know who the audience is. Otherwise, you end up looking like an aged politician with a hat on backwards to quotes, get down with the kids. And that looks quite preposterous. In real life, it looks preposterous. It's got to be said, it's got to be said that Stuart's never done that. So. Online, it looks preposterous. So uh, the answer to the question is all of the channels, all of the medias. The one thing I would say in terms of the independence campaign, and particularly the SNP component of that, because we were early adopters of lots of this technology, our organic reach to real people is phenomenal. Mm. Absolutely phenomenal. But we need to keep running to stay ahead. Yeah. And we can't take our eye off the ball of the traditional media because for some people that remains important. However difficult that might be on occasions. But it also depends on demographic. Like on Facebook, you've tend to got a much, much older demographic um, that will probably go out to vote anyway, whereas our younger people are inhabiting different spaces and that tends to be the more obscure of social networks. Um, so in terms of spending hundreds of thousands on Facebook marketing, that that's just putting your money away, throwing away. So we, we definitely need to look at who is the best in the field to do our digital marketing, whether that be as a political party, as a movement, um, we need we need the best on board because it's there's tricks there. Somebody in an earlier session was saying, is this, you know, we need somebody who can speak teen, uh, but no, is there anybody in the room that can do that? Nobody put their hands up. So I think there is a challenge there. Stephen? On, on that, this is a broad movement. Now, there was, there was a study done in the aftermath of the 2014 referendum and they found that most people who made up their mind did not do so because they'd been watching Stuart on the telly or a business person on the telly. With every, with every no, respect, no, no. Stuart was a very fine advocate on, on, on the telly. <laughs> um, but, but it was the conversations that they'd had at school. Yeah. It was the conversations that they'd had in the workplace. Peer-to-peer -peer is really important. Yeah. Now, mm -hmm. Iona uh, mentioned earlier on that people tell her off for just being a folk singer on, on, on so, so she shouldn't have a Well, you know, Parliament and politics is made up of people with every type of background. Absolutely. That's what makes it so rich and so successful. It is made up of people who were in the arts. It's made up of people who were in business. It's made up of people in academia. It's made, that, that's the way it should be. And our, our movement is representative of that. I remember being really impressed, speaking to my colleagues when I was a, um, a member of Parliament, that the broad range of backgrounds that they had. So everybody brings something different. And you need to harness that because that becomes really important in terms of the way that you connect and the way that you talk to people. And I'll just, on, on, on one final point of what Iona said in terms of social media, social media is only one medium. You know, we have to think about this in, in the round. But remember, and I, and I will say again, if unionists are going to, or, or people are going to be abusive, 
that is reflective on their case. If we are abusive, it is a reflection on our case. And I think that's critical. People will get frustrated, people will get upset, but every single person who believes in the independence movement is, is an advocate. I, I lost count of the number of times you're making a point in a debate which says, somebody on social media said this and they are a supporter of independence, so you lot are really up, very unpleasant. And you're like, no, that's one unpleasant person. But it's something we must all be mindful of. Um, and it's hard, but it's important. It's a good point. And the, the other thing to bear in mind is that you don't have to argue with somebody that's being abusive um, because you get nothing from it anyway. With it, we've, we've got some uh, listener questions that have come in. One actually very local from Tariff, from uh, Ian, um, who's saying, assuming we win independence, how important is it that Scotland has a written constitution and who would decide what it is? So I'll come to you again, Stephen, for that. First. So I'm going I'm to use some of my European experience. I used to work in, um, in, in Brussels and I was there around about the time um, that the Lisbon Treaty um, was being um, written, and I, I think that if, I think we need a written constitution. I think the years of Brexit and the chaos show that you need a written constitution. Um, but actually, you've got a huge opportunity here, and actually around about the conversations around about Lisbon, which the late and much much missing McCormack was very involved in, um, the level of citizen engagement, citizens assembly, taken out, take your time include people and really engage with people that might not believe in independence say well we voted for independence now we're sorry you didn't but we want you to have ownership of that it was a big missed opportunity around the brexit period so i think just one example is to learn from the conversations that happened in europe around lisbon and interestingly sorry they keep doing this every five to ten years elsewhere in europe as well this is something that keep having the conversations and make it as broad as possible and what are your thoughts on that yeah, well, when we uh, first saw the trade agreement, um, the Brexit trade agreement, the one industry that was completely left out the narrative was my industry, the entertainment and arts industry. And uh, the Musicians' Union, was, of which I'm a board member of the Scottish regional branch. Um, Ouch. Yeah. Um, we, they were quite quick in trying to rectify this. But being able to have frictionless visa-free touring opportunities in the EU is incredibly important. Um, I've done loads of touring where you just, you don't have to do anything. You just take the van over to a checkpoint and you wait and you go. Now that's almost impossible. Um, and that really, really diminishes cultural exchange, which diminishes our ability to understand different points of views and different cultures, customs and traditions. So for me, definitely having um, public consultation is, um, imperative in creating a constitution and that's and that's something that we didn't we didn't really have any input on in the whole trade deal and people let, were left out to dry again and Stuart, what are your thoughts on a written constitution for scotland a written constitution yes bill of rights yes as to how you do it committee of experts versus a citizens assembly for example i'd probably veer towards a citizens assembly for precisely the reason stephen said that's one of a number of opportunities immediately post-independence to engage the no voters and bring them with us. Because even after we win, there'll be people there who are anxious, who don't know what it means. Because they once upon a time heard a Labour politician say, oh, my son in Cardiff will become foreign. Now, of course, that was never true. <laughs> but some people will have believed it. Some people have remembered snippets of misinformation. So if we do a written constitution and we take our time, then we can bring, begin to bring a queen of people with us that might otherwise sit and simmer on the sidelines. Jacob Rees-Mogg called Scots language and the Welsh language foreign languages. 
um, in the chamber last year and I just thought it was absolutely hilarious that like he would call it a foreign language but also deny the fact that we want a, a democratic referendum to, to actually um, re re realise that foreignity, if that's the word. But, but, but it's interesting you should say that because uh, and I had to bring in a question from one of, one of my constituents in Inverness from Jessica who said how long can Boris Johnson maintain the position of denying a Section 30 order? Stuart? Um, I, I don't think he can maintain it at all. Um, I think he knows he can't maintain it because the only real option, assuming the Scottish Government's legal advice stands up, and I believe it probably does, the only option he's got is to go to the Supreme Court. But they don't know they're going to win that. So if they go to the Supreme Court and they lose, the courts will effectively give Scotland the right to hold a referendum any time we like. Now, I think on that basis, there'll be a referendum. It's also the case if they opt out, if they try to boycott, they are carving themselves out of any discussion on timescale, mandate, a franchise, question, funding, who the lead no organisation is. You know, they're going to talk up this game just now because it suits them. Surely to God, they can't be so stupid, not just in democratic terms, but in their own self-interested terms, to actually play this game out to the end. We've got some uh, some other questions, but we're, we're coming towards the end of the uh, time that we've got here with uh, my guests today. Uh, there's one here from Kate from Paisley, and she says, a very simple one, can, can the guests sum up the need for independence in one sentence? Uh, difficult, Stephen, but you're a man for a challenge. So. Do it in one word, it's normal. <laughs> <laughs> Just getting away from the toxicity of Westminster. Sure. This is democracy. And uh, we've got another local one here from Nicole. Uh, what we've seen on display at Westminster, this reflects very much what we were talking about at the start of the podcast. What we've seen at Westminster, the lack of accountability and the downright shamelessness from the Prime Minister has the potential to lead to voter apathy. Uh, people saying, what's the point? You know, nothing will change. How do we tackle that? We'll come to you, Iona, first. I mean, the local council elections in England really showed that things will change and that um, they have had massive losses, which was, you know, brilliant to see people actually using their votes and, and using democracy. But yeah, I think that the debacle with Partygate and Beergate and Wine Time Friday is absolutely exhausting. I've spent so many hours looking at this, reading it, debating it. It's, it's, not, it's not adult behaviour to, to have to talk about this all the time. There should be some sort of course of action that is actually tangible. He should be out. That's what I think. But he's hudding on and he'll hud on until he is pushed. And I just think that we need, we have to separate ourselves from that. We need to be taken seriously on the world stage. And right now, wherever I go in the world, people think of us as a total joke. And I have to remind people that we are separate entities, separate people, separate nations. Do you think that fear about voter apathy actually works the other way, Stuart, and uh, might encourage people to be more active about their votes? I'm not sure if, um, if the fear of apathy itself is a driver for people to change their behaviour. Uh, I think what people understand the consequences of no change might be as a far stronger driver. Uh, and there's a hundred thousand reasons we can say to people, 
not just you must vote for us, but you must vote full stop. What troubles me slightly is that we've got the elections bill engaged in voter suppression. We've got UK executive diktat over bits of the Electoral Commission. Mm. We've got ministers making merit of effectively breaking international law. Breaking international law. One would have hoped that these things, real things, a real fundamental attack on democracy would have been the motivator for people to get out and vote in a particular way. So uh, let's hope that yet happens. But again, maybe all of us, the politicians and uh, everyone else, has a job to do to explain the risks we face. So the Yes movement is a big movement. The SNP is part of that, is a big party nowadays. Um, I can remember, but there's one thing that hasn't changed, and I can remember this when I joined the party and um, started doing something actually in a, with Stuart um, a long, long, long time ago that doesn't change if you're trying to tackle apathy. There's lots of fancy stuff you can do and ways of engaging. You cannot be getting out chapping doors and speaking to folk. And I know that's not for everybody and not everybody does it, yeah. but you know that face to face it does two things one and most importantly it helps engage so when people are sick of what they're seeing at westminster things and they feel pretty hopeless and i can understand that you can chat to them face to face um but it does another thing and it's one thing when i was an mp i found it really helpful i'm sure drew and stuart will concur with this which is um it brings you back down to earth with what what's important and what really matters to people so there's a lot of stuff that you can do but when it comes to apathy chapping doors, rolling up, having conversations with folk, so you're not just in your bubble. Um, it, it paints a picture as well as continuing to build up support as well. So the rule that applied 25 years ago still applies now. Chapping doors counts. Well, our, our last uh, listener's question we've got time from is uh, from Rona. who's in St Andrews, so I'll, I'll, ask the, I'll stay with you, as uh, Stephen, for this. Would Scottish independence be good for other UK countries? How would England, for example, fare? It's a really good question. I think I know who this came from. But anyway, it's a really good question. Um, and again, apologies to those who were in the European um, session earlier on. I, I think we need to enter into independence and in spirit of generosity. What do I mean by that? Um, England and Wales are nearest neighbours. We've got a lot of friends and family. I've got a lot of family there are going to get poorer, less well off. I think that Scottish independence could be a reset to help them rethink their place in the world and actually reset our relationship with our friends and colleagues in these islands. During the Brexit process, I was very closely involved and I used to go to Dublin and engage with Irish politicians. They spent hundreds of millions of pounds on something that wasn't their fault, um, trying to bail out a country that with whom they'd had a difficult relationship. But you know what? The Irish know that these are close friends and allies and what happens in England has a deep impact on them and they have a much better relationship um, with their near neighbours. And it doesn't just matter for us. Our European friends are looking at how we engage with our near neighbours because they want to rebuild that relationship as well. So let's talk about being a bridge to England and Wales and let's talk about entering in with a spirit of generosity and not looking backwards but looking forwards about the kind of relationship we can build in the future. Iona? Mm, that is a really nice sentiment that you've got there. Truth, truthfully, I, I haven't really thought about it, to be honest. What happens to, to what we leave behind in the dust? It wasn't really on my mind. When I had the right to tour in 27 member states of the EU taken away from me, I didn't go 
oh, but if we join the EU, then I'll have to get a work visa to tour in England or Wales or Northern Ireland. That That's nothing. It just, maybe it's from a selfish perspective, but I, I thought to myself, I'd, I'd rather tour in Europe. It's a bigger market. It's, you know, I'm coming at it from business. I'm sure that loads of people come at it from business. But <laughs> yeah, having that sort of, I, I feel like I was in Denmark last year for a tour and we had shared language, shared customs, shared traditions. I thought, this is where I want to be at. This is where I want to share my bridges and my culture with and, and whatever I'm leaving behind in order to get that, I'm happy. This is a very individualistic approach and I understand it's very selfish, but it's we're here to debate, aren't we? And you feel that 27 borders have been thrown up? Yeah. Right. Stuart, what are your thoughts on independence and the impact on the rest of the UK, in particular England? Yeah, that, that last point you made is actually the key one. With independence, we will lose 27 borders. Mm -hmm and possibly, possibly have won in part. England will have exactly the same border with 28 countries as it has with 27. That's the practical way of looking at it. But this is a much deeper question. Independence for us is simply democracy. We become this sovereign nation taking our normal place in the world. Uh, I think Stephen's stuff has a lot of merit that we must reach out and do it properly and kindly and sincerely because there will be some people in England who are devastated. It's the end of empire. It's the closest bit they were able to control, notwithstanding how it happened and all the rest of it. And in the same way that we are conscious now we need to take Scottish Unionists with us on the journey through independence. We may also have that burden of taking bits of England on the journey with us. <laughs> but let me say in all sincerity, I've never thought they're too small, too poor or too stupid to be independent. And I wish them very well. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you. Well, we have almost come to the, the end of our uh, podcast, our live podcast here at uh, AIM in Aberdeen. Um, so let me ask this final question. Stuart and Stephen, uh, you've both been on the podcast before and you've had this question, but I'm going to ask you uh, again today. Iona, this is a new one for you. Uh, if you could implement one new policy or change an existing one, which we cannot currently do under the constitutional setup uh, we have, after independence, what would it be? Oh, no points-based system. None of that. We welcome any new Scot ever. Bloody Sure. There's an awful lot to choose from. <laughs> I think I would repeal the intention of any government or its ability to willfully break international treaties. Mm -hmm. yes. And Stephen, the final word for you, the one policy... Well, mine encapsulates both of those. Um, I Look, there's so much to choose from, so much. I'm desperate to rejoin the EU. We're getting left behind, and I'm, I, I don't want future generations to be left behind. So rejoin the EU as soon as possible and start working it right now, yesterday. 
whenever we need to. Well, on that word, can I thank you, Stephen Gethins, for uh, coming to Scotland's Choice today, to Stuart Hosey, uh, MP, and, uh, of course, the Iona Fife uh, for coming along. Thanks to all of you for taking part in the podcast, and thanks to all of you in the audience and those who submitted questions. Uh, tune in to Scotland's Choice for more great podcasts on the route to independence as we go forward. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.